Our gospel lesson is from Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 21 through 30. Hear now God's words to you. You have heard that it was said in those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you are liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. The Word of the Lord. I've spent enough years writing and delivering sermons to know that on any given Sunday in any given place, telling people some new truth they don't want to hear is the kiss of death. Never mind that it may come from the mouth of Jesus or is a logical explanation of biblical precepts, just let the preacher speak on current events or even have a modicum of what might be perceived as political or is any way critical of what most folks believe and then stand back and listen because it won't be pretty and it won't be very civil. The worst fights in the world are those that are over what is perceived to be religious issues, especially when the issues are really something else. The truth is we have difficulty when someone who is our friend disagrees with us on some point. Whether it's political or theological or sociological, we tend to get mad with each other, sometimes over the slightest of perceived slights, or feelings, or emotions, and we risk losing the contact of a friend over ideology. And the problem for somebody like me is that I made the decision a long time ago which master I was going to serve, whether it was the master of public opinion, or what people want to hear, or the much harder master of following Jesus. Okay, have I scared you to death? Have, have I got you listening really hard? 
Are your ears all perked up to hear these words that you're afraid you don't want to hear? Good. Because if that's the case, I stand in good company with people like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Micah or Jesus. Most of you have sat long enough in chairs or in pews on a Sunday morning to know you'll be in for a challenge when the preacher starts off reading a text that says, you've always been told, but the truth is bigger than that. And that's what Jesus does in this particular text. Here's what the facts really are, he says. You see, for most of us, the old wisdom is always the best wisdom. We're not looking for new. We've got our hands full just trying to live and deal with the facts we already know. In fact, that's the major reason some people say they come to church, to hear the ancient wisdom again. I had a fellow say to me once, I come to church to touch base with the truth that always stays the truth. And I understand that. I think that characterizes most of us. For the past couple of weeks, our gospel lessons have been coming from this fifth chapter of Matthew. And it starts out with the Beatitudes, that's beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we read the Blesseds or the Oh How Happy passages and we like it. We don't necessarily understand it, but we really like it. And then we move on to a text like last week where Jesus says you are light and you are salt. And we especially like that because it tells us Jesus has a high opinion of us. But now Jesus has gone, as we say here in the South, He's gone from preaching to meddling. Because now He's going to raise the stakes in His ethical demands. You have always been told, he says, but I'm here to tell you today that it's bigger than that. It's more than you've been told. Here he moves from the Beatitudes, from light and salt, and he makes a move in this moral understanding that it's not just outward behavior, it is the inward disposition. This is a passage that's caused all kinds of consternation in the church down through the ages. How is it possible for human beings to live without anger or lust or deceit? How is it possible for us? Is Jesus putting forth an impossible ethic? Does He mean, does he mean that we're really supposed to fail in our attempt? And if that's the case, how do we take these high demands seriously? In today's Gospel, Jesus takes commands that too many of us already don't keep. Take the one, thou shalt not murder, since we happen to be the murder capital of the world. And he says, whoever commits murder shall be liable of the court. But I say to you, if your anger with your brother you also will be guilty and be taken to court. But if you say to your brother, you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. 
wow. I confess, I've been guilty many times of looking at the TV and saying about the news commentator, you're a fool! And I bet you have too. Surely that newspaperman would rather me call him a fool than bash his brains out, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus, this seems like too big a demand for people like us. And then Jesus says that when the offering plate's being passed on Sunday and you're getting ready to drop in that rather large cash donation and you remember that you have an issue with a brother or sister, you leave that money laying there in the chair beside you and you go make up with a brother or sister and then you come back and put it in the offering plate. And I want to say, well, Jesus, okay... I understand about making up, but can't they just put it in the offering plate first and then go do it? But no, that's not what we say. And then Jesus makes one of the most astonishing statements that has troubled people ever since He said it. Jesus said, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I think, wow, Jimmy Carter got it right, didn't he? You remember that a long time ago. I don't know why Jesus doesn't condemn women for looking lustfully at men. Surely that has to happen, doesn't it? But that's not what he says. And I don't know any self-respecting male who has not at one time or another been guilty of looking at a woman, well, in ways we probably shouldn't. Adultery in the heart? How many of you are guilty? Whoa, don't answer. <laughs> I don't really want to know. Because my suspicion is we all are. Surely, Jesus, this is enough of a trial for we weak humans not to commit adultery, let alone for the content of our heart to be judged. And that's particularly difficult in a culture like ours that uses sex to sell everything from cars to cereal. How hard it is. Jesus takes these few simple laws from the Hebrew Scripture and He ratchets, he ratchets them up a hundred degrees. He goes from the difficult to what we think of as the impossible. Now, some interpreters of this passage have contended that Jesus really wasn't serious. There are those who have said that Jesus told these things knowing that we couldn't do it and the reason He did it is so we would realize that we're weak, miserable sinners and we've got to depend on Him. Well, okay. But I'm not sure I buy that. If anybody has ever thought, well, I may not be a saint, but at least I didn't commit adultery, this changes the position, doesn't it? But I think Jesus has something else in mind here. I think Jesus is serious. It sounds to me like He's making commands and demands. 
He seems to be unimpressed by the gap that we leave between the way we think and the way we act. Most of us are content if we can just avoid doing bad things. But Jesus raises the bar. He demands that we attempt to make even our feelings and our inner dispositions match His way. To hate someone is to wish ill will for that person. It is to sometimes wish that person were gone. And thus Thomas Aquinas can say that anger is particularly sinful because it's the first cousin to murder. And the same, of course, in a different way can be said about lust. Lust seems to be a rather natural human propensity. But what begins in the heart often gets acted out in ways that destroy people. And so Jesus, far from lowering the human standards, raises the bar. He takes these inward thoughts seriously. And he takes it as seriously, he says, as wrong action. So has Jesus set the bar too high? Is it just simply impossible? Are we being pushed to utterly unrealistic standards? Or is it possible that Jesus believes in you more than you believe in yourself? Could it be that Jesus is convinced you really can do better in spite of all the things that swirl around us? We Christians believe that the one who preached this Sermon on the Mount that contained these difficult sayings not only is the one who dies for us and forgives us and prepares us through His grace for a heavenly abode now and in the future, but He's also the one who helps us live now in ways that are more loving and more fulfilling. Another Thomas Aquinas quote, God does not demand impossible things of us, but enables us to do all things in the name of Jesus. So the first thing I think you have to do is define what's Jesus talking about. There are two words for anger in the Greek. One is that white-hot anger that bursts forth when it sees a wrong. It bursts forth, but it doesn't last. It's hot, but it doesn't last long and it leaves no remains. And that's not the word that Jesus uses here. Yes, that kind of anger can be problematic. But what Jesus is talking about is the word that means the long-lived anger. 
Anger that is dwelt upon, nurtured, cultivated, until it really does wish evil for the person. That's what Jesus is talking about. Anger which will not die. Selfish anger. Anger that plots to hurt, to harm, to hold a grudge. Anger that won't let go. And the same is true in a slightly different way in this issue of the insult to the brother or sister and the far worse, calling them a fool. The first word means an insult, a word of contempt, referring to someone who is beneath you. And that's bad enough. But Jesus says, when you call someone a fool... And the word that he uses there means that we cast aspersions on somebody's moral character. When we call somebody's faith and activity into question, that's the one that endangers us in the hell of fire. And in like manner, it's true for the last one. It's one thing to take notice of an attractive person, even to the point of commenting upon it. It's another thing altogether to lust after a person as if they were an object that we can simply possess. That's where Jesus raises the bar morally. It's those actions that Jesus refers to as lusting in the heart. God does not demand the impossible of us, but gives us the ability, gives us the ability to live at that higher standard. See, I think you know people who live like that. I think if we had time today and we could break into small groups and if people would truly share with you, there are people here who have lived their lives long enough and well enough that they've come to understand what it means to resist temptation. They do it every day. Are they perfect? Well, no. Who is? But they've learned how. I suspect they're around us all over. And that's what we're talking about. It's about moving forward in the commands that Jesus gives us. It's about disciplining ourselves, our thoughts as well as our actions. Christian discipline is a whole new issue now in our culture. And it's not imposed from outside, it's imposed internally from yourself and from close Christians who help you monitor yourself. God has not created us for sin, but for salvation. We have been created for eternal communion with God and our hearts really are restless until we find that. And the God who dies for us and is resurrected for us is also the God who comes to help sinners be a little better. I had a man come to see me not long ago, and don't try to guess who it is because you don't know him. 
and he was in terrible anguish. It seems that he had developed this problem, this habit. He just loved X-rated movies. And his wife thought they were disgusting. And they had had it out. And he had agreed he didn't want to do that anymore. But he slipped and he fell and she found out and now she wanted to divorce him. And so I did the pastoral thing, which is trying to make him feel a little bit better about the situation. And I said things like, well, everybody falls from time to time. Uh, we're all sinners. This seems a little bit drastic to me for you to be divorced over this. And he comes back and he says, don't you see? I promised God I wasn't going to do this and it has cost me everything. I really, I really wanted to follow God in this. And I failed. And as I thought about it, I realized he was right. And I was wrong. I was offering him an easy way out. Not the way of grace. We are called to live better. Not to make excuses for how we've been, but to live to a higher calling. To drop the anger. To drop those thoughts that are not helpful. To remember who we are and whose we are. And Jesus says, by the grace I will put in you, I will help you do that. But you've got to discipline yourself. You've got to work at it. You can't just come in church on Sunday and say, well, Lord, I did it again, and then go out and do the same thing all over. My goodness, how often have we done that? But God Himself will be there for us. Jesus says we don't have to be victims of these passions. We, by the grace of God, really can live better. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.